Alright, hello and welcome back everybody to the Inking Out Loud podcast. On this episode, which is to say the 18th, we're going to be diving into the first half of Kane's Law, the final volume in Matthew Woodring Stover's sci-fi fantasy blend, The Axe of Kane. Today is going to be a brief episode for a couple of reasons. Uh, first, our schedules weren't really lining up too neatly for today's episode, but second, and more importantly, this book is not making a whole lot of sense. Uh, myself, I'm just going to be providing a lot of, I don't know, reactionary feedback, we'll say, and I'll leave the majority of the explaining to those who are more suited for that task today. Um, and also, a friendly reminder once again, that there will be no censoring taking place for this episode. So, as per usual, I'm your host, Rob Santos, and I'm joined again by my co-host, Mr. Drew McCaffrey. How's it going? And we have our, sa- our sound engineer, Mr. Pat McCaffrey, who's going to be How's with us today as well. So, to kick off for today, and by Drew's request, I'm going to start with a quote from mine and Drew's Facebook chat transcripts from yesterday. Namely, wherein I explained to Drew just how fucking confused I am. I told him, and I quote... I'm at about the 40% mark right now, and not once have I yet understood a single fucking thing that's happening. All I know is that there's a horse witch who won't shut the fuck up about being a horse witch. We got a glimpse of Angvasa's tit, and drunk Turkiel is still stealing the show. So, Drew, can you kindly explain to us exactly what we should be knowing by this point? (laughs) So, and I'm not going to pretend like I have all the answers, because I most certainly don't have all the answers. This book is, without a doubt, weird. It is crazy. There's, like, time travel stuff. There are things that happen, things that unhappen, things that might happen. Like, it's wild. But basically, what's going on in this book is that at the end of Cain Blackknife, uh, Cain was captured by the social police and brought back to Earth and offers a deal to the Board of Governors. And this book kicks off with them saying... No, we're not going to take that deal. Here's a different deal. And that deal is that he injects himself with crude oil, which will turn him into a uh, an aspect or an avatar of the blind god. And this is kind of like a, a startling revelation because you find out that several people have done this. Like Gail Keller has done this. Um, and, and I'm just finding this out now. <laughs> it doesn't automatically turn you into a friggin' monster like Kohlberg. So, Kane does it. Kane says, alright, yes, I will do this. And, by doing so, <laughs> and because he made a deal with the outside power demon Black Knife God way back during Retreat from the Bodekin, the mm-hmm. rules of godhood have changed. And gods can now directly intervene, interventions with a capital I, in the world. And what happens with that is that things unhappen. And time doesn't really mean a whole lot. So Cain is using his newfound god powers to hopefully to try to craft a different version of events. And so okay. there are these there are these scenes with Duncan where it's from Duncan's point of view in like above the vertical city in what's called the now of always and this is like the god time and Cain well Hari Jonathan Fist is asking him if you could take back the worst thing you ever did would you do it 
And really, he's just asking for Duncan to give him advice because Kane's the one making the decision. And Duncan says, yes, of course I would. And Kane says, okay, and stabs him with the metaphorical and literal sword of man slash Kosal slash Blade of Taishal slash uh-huh. many other things. Um, and, and by doing so, what he has done is like made the potential for a different set of events to happen and become permanent. And so okay. all the horse witch things, all the, the flashbacks to the Faltane County War and the horse witch and all of that are things that Kane wants to happen. He's hoping will happen if all goes according to plan. Okay. Uh, okay, so that, that cleared a couple of things <laughs> up. Um, it God damn, this narrative is so confusing, though. And it yeah. could just be because of the fact that I'm back to working 65 to 70 hours a week again. I'm on nights, so my only opportunity to, you know, re- consume content for the podcast is really over audiobook. Um, so I, that really throws a huge monkey wrench into my kind of cohesion and understanding exactly what's happening. I mean, shit's jumping all over the place. Um, and it was really, it's really starting to get on my fucking nerves. And I, I, I wrote down, I wrote down in the middle of a, I think I was on a, a lunchtime when I wrote down, this narrative makes no fucking sense. Stover is getting way, and I have like 45 A's in that way, way too eccentric with his writing. Um, oh yeah, and this is basically goes on to say exactly what I told you. I'm like so and so into the book. I'm so far into the book. I have no idea what the fuck is going on. It's like all these perspectives just jumping back and forth, back and forth, things happening that I, I was just like, uh, if maybe if I had the actual physical in front of me or if I decided to get it on my e-reader, if I had time to read it on my e-reader, it'd make a little more sense. That said, the prose still shines. You know, he's still word for word an amazing writer. Kane is still shining with his one-liners. I still do have a few oh, yeah. sweet one-liners written down. But all in all, I mean, I'm <laughs> I'm really like, I don't know. I don't know how else to explain my frustration with what's going on. Pat, what about you, man? Like, how how are you, like, digesting this? Well, narrative might not be the right word to use for what's sure, sure. happened slash not happened in this. Yeah. Uh, like, the but, intro um, fucked me up. I was like, what? I think it's yeah. really interesting from uh, my point of view to do a book like this. Um for some reason that I still haven't been able to put my finger on, it reminded me of nothing so much as The Last Battle by C.S. Lewis. Mm, mm-hmm. um, it felt like they both... Mm, I mean, they're it. almost nothing alike, right? Yeah. But they both had this feeling of uh, existentialism, let's say, that the, sure. the text was immersed in. And that was cool. Um, at this point, my my idea is okay this is fine as far as it goes but where is it going the journey is important but the destination (laughs) is also important so it it's interesting (laughs) but it's not uh without a suitable ending it's not good enough in and of itself to warrant uh high praise okay and have you uh, i forget have you read the entirety of this book beforehand or are you yes i have okay okay Good to know. Good to know. Um, so I'm going to read out a, a couple of brief quotes from Kane's Law sure. that, that uh, 
it's something to kind of digest. It takes a little while to wrap your head around it, but once you do, things start making a lot more sense in this book with what's going Good. on. Good. I could use a lot of that and right so about now. Kane is talking, Jonathan Fist is talking about the monastic teachings on gods. And on says, what, sorry? Yeah, the mic cut gods. out there for a sec. Oh, gods. Okay, got you. And he says, human gods. Ideational mm -hmm. powers. Natural powers are expressions of natural law. Outside powers exist beyond reality. More or less in the middle are the gods of humanity. It's kind of like they're half natural and half outside. They don't dramatically violate natural law at any given moment, but they exist outside time. Some religions teach that to their gods, time is a dream, which is as good a way of thinking about it as any. A god can choose any moment, past, future, whatever, to them it's all the same. Any moment they happen to feel like, then reach in and stir shit up to make something happen somewhen else. Somewhen. And, and he goes on to talk about when the gods start going to war with each other, they're constantly going back and forth and, and unhappening things and making things happen and, and time unravels, basically. And so, and then he goes, infinite chaos is exactly where we'd be without Jareth and Jontho of Tyrnal. Jontho Ironhand and Jareth Godslaughterer. Brothers, twins, the story goes. They might have been gods themselves. In Abbey School, we're taught that their power was time-binding, that what made them capable of standing up to the gods was that shit they did was permanent, even against the gods. And so those two things are, are what we have to keep in mind with what's going on with Cain's Law. And especially because at this point, Cain is both an ideational power and a time-binding human. He's capable time of making human. things permanent. He's got the whole black flow thing going on. He is the blade of Tai Shao. He can make things permanent. And that's what he's trying to do with Duncan, with the sword through Duncan. He's hoping that when he pulls that sword out, the events he wants to have happen, the, the thing he wants to change at some point in the past, will turn out the way he's showing Duncan. In all of these horse switch scenes. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it's, okay. It's slightly uh, uh, pretentious to write a book from the point of view of gods. However, if one was yeah. going to do it, I'd say the way he's doing it gives justice to the concept. Yeah. At right. Least, it, at least if you're talking about far as how he lays yeah. out his own rules for. Uh, what's happening, what the gods can and cannot yeah. do. Mm -hmm. um, as long as you accept this is the manner in which gods are working. They go back in time, right. they make things unhappen, or they make things happen differently. Um, and, and while we're on this subject, there was a thought about this particular point that I did write down. Um, and it was when Cain was explaining the concept of like divine intervention, uh, and the way they, they, they have efficiency and their energy for change, like in terms of traversing time. Mm -hmm. The analogy that he uses, and he, he uses an analogy about uh, bringing a building down by, not by shaking the earth, right? Yeah. But by striking a heart attack in the engineer at a moment of a pivotal calculation, right? And it sounds to, it sounded to me, it harkened back a lot to the example that Mile Koth gives about his will for Cain back in Heroes Die. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't write down the exact quote, but he said something along the lines, and it was in the first scene, I think, in which we actually met Milecoth. And he said something along the lines of, if I should desire that he visits me on the morrow, then he left six months ago. Yeah. So 
so hearing Kane explain that same kind of concept three books in the future to me was like, okay, that was kind of a nice, uh, that was kind of a neat little tie in there. Mm-hmm. And uh, it gave me a little more faith going forward that maybe Stover has had something, some groundwork laid down that he still has yet to, un, you know, unveil. Yeah, it, it is moments like that, that for all the craziness, all the weirdness, all the kind of chaos that it seems there is in this book, he has a plan and he has rules and the rules are staying the same. The rules mm. are just crazy. <laughs> right. Yeah. What we have to be prepared for is the fact that what we're reading at any given moment might not actually happen. Yeah, and so going back to the very beginning of this book, where there's that scene with Cain, like, mortally wounded, climbing to the top of the spire, and he's going to pull out the sword, and in doing so, he's going to kill the outside power, the the Diltalon, Irakonth, whatever you want to call the Black Knife God. Um, and then he says, no we're going to make a deal. Uh, I'm not going to pull the sword. I have no clue if that's something that like unhappened or might happen because it doesn't align with either of the current um, set timelines that we have of Kane in Perthens Ford. So we have the, the Kane black knife timeline where he gets, you know, knocked out and captured and he kills um, Perth and Claylock, and and then gets taken to Earth. Obviously, Kane doesn't have a punctured lung. He doesn't have a broken leg. He doesn't have a broken arm. He doesn't climb up to the top of the spire in that one. And then in the intervention timeline that we have going in this book, where he comes back as Jonathan Fist instead of Dominic Shade, and he's like, we have the scene where he's looking at the burned-down remains of the Pratt and Redhorn, mm. and then he turns the corner, and the building's there, and Tapas and Turkild are outside and, and all that. Um, in that timeline as well, like, Kane's fine. He's not, like, he's not mortally wounded and climbing to the top of the spire. And it's like, so I think what's happening is that that early scene is something that Kane did to... In, in one timeline, in one potential past, but by doing it in that potential past, he enabled himself in the future to make that unhappen <laughs> and and get the timeline that we're reading about in this book now. Okay. I can... Oh, my God. These, these timelines are... <laughs> oh, God. I don't know. This is a book that I'm definitely going to have to return and read several more times in the yeah. future. And um, going forward next week, um, like for myself, I know for myself, what I'll be doing is probably restarting the audiobook from the very beginning. Uh, the, the good news is this is still a pretty short book. I wasn't actually expecting mm-hmm. that. Um, it's it's barely longer than Kane Black Knife was. Um, but holy shit, is it way harder to understand what's happening. So for me, 15 hours, I mean, I'm doing 11, 11 and a half hours a day. I'll be able to knock out the entirety of this entire book again in, in two work shifts. I'll, I'll start from the beginning again, um, keeping that in mind. Uh, and I'm, yeah, because that, that's definitely, I think, going to help me straighten things going forward a little bit. Um, but yeah, do yeah, you guys want to start talking? Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, that I was just going to comment that that would be a very helpful strategy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm I mean, gonna like this, definitely. This book makes you think. Like it, it really forces you to wrestle with the text and figure out what's going on. And I mean, of everything I've read, the only the only thing I've read that I think makes you work harder mm. for the story is the book of the new spun by Gene Wolfe. 
Uh, Gene I, Wolf. Although I, I will say I did just start Peace by Gene Wolfe recently, and oh my gosh, it's even more difficult. But uh. <laughs> I, you know, I'm only like 35 pages into that so far. So, uh, what do you think, Pat? I saw you in the background going, "Yeah, it sounds good." Yeah, yeah? Uh, Gene Wolfe is uh, a treasure. <laughs> yeah. Oh shit. Okay. Well, when we do get around to doing Gene Wolfe, as I know we're going to eventually, eventually. I am not going to do audiobook. I'm not even going to attempt. No, to do audiobook with that one. It's not even, I mean, I shouldn't have even attempted to do audiobook with this one, but I just don't really have much <laughs> choice when I'm working as much as I am. That's uh, um, but yeah, so, so th- I have, go I have ahead. like one more kind of like a large scale topic. In sure, yes. Yeah. What Stover is doing with this book, like as an author, obviously he's like, he's wrapping up the story, right? But in a way, he's almost like, writing an, an academic literary analysis of the first two Kane books in this Oh, story. yeah, I could agree with like, that one. Like, the amount of character analysis that the characters in this do on Kane, like, it, it, this book just is, it gets so meta. Yeah. There's so many layers of narrative going on at the same time that, it, like I said, it's hard to wrap your head around. Yeah, no, it definitely is, especially with the amount of references that we're getting to the, oh, not yeah. just references, the, but like direct quotes from the first book and the second uh-huh. book. Uh, this is definitely, <laughs> this is, this, this is definitely a huge kind of step back kind of like observation of kind of the shape of the narrative up to this point more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Um and I do kind of appreciate it for that. It's, it's, it's hard, as you just mentioned, to, to wrap your head around as a whole, but I, uh, you know, I, I'm definitely not giving up on it yet. Uh, I'll be going yeah. forward. I'll be listening a lot harder. But God damn, he's not making it easy. But then again, if it was easy, it might not be worth it, right? Yeah, I, I would I would say so. And I mean, like, um, thinking about it from from a writer's perspective, like it must have taken him so freaking long. Oh to God, write could this you book. imagine trying to keep everything straight and trying to balance everything here? Oh, narratively speaking, it'd be like fuck. Well, it'd be a, it'd be it a nightmare. Might, it might not be as hard as you uh, expect. Remember that our perspective as readers and his perspective as a writer is vastly different. Yep. Now, when he sat down to write this book, one imagines that he had he had the end in mind. He wasn't just making shit up as he went along. Oh, so, I hope so, yeah. So whereas yeah. we as the readers are encountering these side passages and dead ends all over the place and shit that is designed to confuse us, as the architect of this maze, uh, he sort of knew the way through from the start in my view to an extent and i don't know that's a damn good point to make there though so i don't know what kind of writer stover is i have to assume he's a like you know he's a a planner he's he's Mm -hmm. a an architect you know he he probably outlines heavily um but but that's my point is like he he must have had to do so much pre-writing and so much mm-hmm. pre-planning to make sure that this book worked. And there must have been revision, you know, heavy yeah. revision needed to, to make everything line up in, in whatever twisted way it does line up. <laughs> the services of a good editor are never to be underestimated. Yeah, I, I yeah. was about to say, can you imagine how much of a pain in the ass this would have been to edit, though? That oh, would have yeah. been even fucking harder. Oh, my God. I can't, like, damn. I can't imagine. I mean, it's, it's funny... Thinking about the the point of view of an editor handling Kane, uh, every new scene going. Of what the fuck? <laughs> the the most recent episodes that we've actually released have been the Rune Lords episodes. 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, back in like episode nine and 10 and stuff. And I go on at length about how poorly edited those books are. Yeah. And, uh, and those books are so much more straightforward than this, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Um, so going forward, do you guys want to just, uh, quickly discuss some of the characters and, you know, impressions of, yes. of what's happening? Okay. Um, I want to start with Angvasa. Believe yeah. it or not. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, just a couple little gripes. That, not even a couple little gripes. Just for, for one main gripe. One thing that I have, and something that I wrote down actually uh, during Kane Black Knife, and I never got a chance to to voice this um, during that particular episode. But and this is a stupid little thing, perhaps. But it she's described several times as being an, the 463rd champion of Krill. Mm-hmm. Do we know how long the average lifespan of one of these champions is? Not long. Not long. Do we long. we know that for a fact? Yeah, we do. Okay, because that 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 helps me kind of encompass that a little more. Because I thought even with like only ten years as a, as a champion of Krill on average, you know, yeah, it, 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 that would be like fifty thousand years of this organization being around. Like how <laughs> yeah, how no, long? They don't, they don't usually last long. <laughs> I don't, oh, sorry, that would be five thousand. Well, just under five thousand, not yeah. fifty thousand, but, but like. Uh, it would be like, how long could you suppress technology, like to the point, like where you maintain this kind of Bronze Age mm-hmm. uh, setting for thousands and thousands of years? I don't know. But if if you're telling me right now that it's not usually a very long appointment, <laughs> that kind of helps me digest that a little better. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but she is a badass, though. I oh, I actually like going into the, especially coming out of the last book, I was a big fan, and then of course we get a lot more of a a human look at her mm-hmm. in this book up Oof. to this point. I would oh, say that one scene in the jail is yeah. rough, man. Like, it, like uh, getting getting a look inside, like just how raw her psyche is as she has yeah. become the literal like meat puppet of Krill, where yeah. the god actually controls what she does. And like, oof. You'd think there'd yeah. be a nice god somewhere around. In there, <laughs> you would like, think. Like you would right? think. Well, one could argue wrong, that that's what Shambaraya is, is, but she's not really a god god. She's like a human she's god. She's a natural power. She's not yeah. even nice either. Yeah, and that too. <laughs> what do you mean she's not? What, what did she do that was that bad, though? No, I'm not saying she did anything bad. All I'm saying she's just is not nice. <laughs> that all of the things okay, that, okay. that uh, I'll grant she that. does that we perceive as having a positive impact, she doesn't care about that. She's just doing it because that's what she does. Yeah. There's no uh She doesn't expression. care about humans. Yes. Yeah. Uh, which yeah. is kind of funny <laughs> for a god if you have dominion over something but just to like have this dispassionate, disinterested I don't give a fuck right. attitude. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like it's oh it's just the way things shake. But uh, I mean her interactions with Kane led to one of the <laughs> one of the one of my good my favorite one liners <laughs> uh, like that Kane had in this book. Uh, should we save that for the end, do you think? Are we gonna have another three favorite one liners? I don't know if I have three, but we can we can do some favorite one liners at the end, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um but yeah, I mean, she's acting uh, obviously a little more she's we saw her a little hysterical, we saw her being a little immature, um, pretty goddamn forward. In some instances, um, I was actually really glad that I was listening on the audiobook and I didn't have like a speaker playing somewhere because that would have been really <laughs> fucking awkward. Um, yeah. But yeah, what about uh, what about you guys, Angvasa? I know you chimed in a little bit, but is there anything else you wanted to uh, mention about her? I, I mean, I think she's one of my favorite characters in this entire series. Um, the series as a whole. I, I, Interesting. I like. While there isn't a, a nice god, I like that we have 
a real, like, pure-hearted, like, good person, <laughs> you know? That there's there's kind of like a... Well, she's not know. the only one of those we've had, though. Maraud was arguably the yeah, exact yeah. same, yeah. Yeah, no, she's she's awesome, too. I, I love her character as well, and... Um, but, but that's what makes, like, that one scene in the jail so much, like, more powerful is seeing Poignant, her yeah. so completely broken down that she's doing a horrible thing, that she's trying to rape Kane. Yeah, and, that was, and you're yeah. like, you're like, whoa, and, but, but during this whole time, you're getting an inside look, you know, into her mental state, and, like, she's absolutely having a breakdown. She's Do we, do we know how old suicidal. she is? Do we actually get an, uh, an age... Oh, um, uh, any point? I got the I get the impression she's like twenty five. Like she's not. I old. think she's a little under twenty five. Okay, okay. I don't think she was born <clears throat> yet when uh, uh, retreat from the, the retreat from the Bowdecken took place. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't think uh, Claylock had a daughter at that point when he was, you know, making his stand against the Ogriloy and getting his ass well, I mean, handed to him by she's Kane? His niece, but. Oh, I thought she was his daughter. No, oh, she shit, was there's another fucking... in his household, but she's his Oh, that's probably that's why the I thought so. Okay. That's why I don't think she was around, because, like, raised in his household, at the time of retreat from the Bodecan, he was, like, yeah, he was a knight captain, but he was kind of a nobody. After that was when he became, like, this celebrity among the Knights of Krill and was granted, like, estates and lands and things yeah. like that. Yeah, and Kane didn't appear in that picture. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I do not, by the way, appear yeah. in that painting. Uh, <laughs> but, but, yeah, she's... Painting. Should have said painting. You know, Go ahead, a, sorry. She's a tragic character. But she's also somebody that like in in many ways is um inspirational. Yeah, no, definitely so. inspirational. I'd agree with that. Yeah, I'm in agreement with everything that's been said so far. Yeah. Sweet. Uh I do think we need to talk about the horse witch. Oh, sure. The horse witch <laughs> who won't shut the fuck up about being a horse witch. <laughs> That's all she seems to say. She's like Groot. There's a slightly bigger vocabulary. I am the horse witch. I am the horse witch. God. But I mean, she seems like a... <laughs> she seems like an okay... Like, I kind of like how she tests Kane. She tests yeah. his patience. She tests his kind of predispositions as to how people act. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do... like how straightforward she is. Like, yeah. the first time when, when she's like, you have a predator's eyes. And he's like, oh, do you tell that to all the boys? And she's like... Binocular vision. That's how predators yeah, yeah. have their eyes set up. And, and and she calls him a dumbass. And, and he like stops. He's like, wait, did you just call me a dumbass? And she's like, yeah. were you? Were you being a dumbass? <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say that again. I kind of learned a new word during that scene. Binocular. Obviously, I know the word binoculars. I, I assume, you know, I, I, <laughs> I equate that to the, the device, of course. But it wasn't until that specific scene, here I am, 27 years old, thinking, oh, yeah, by, or by ocular, two eyes, four, same, yeah, it makes sense. Duh, <laughs> how did I not put that together before? But, yeah. Yeah, the horse witch, yeah. Is, uh, she's a weird character. Um, we haven't had too much of her at this point. A lot of her uh, interactions so far at this point have been with Duncan, I'd argue, at this yeah. point. Mm-hmm. A little more so than Kane, at least, that we've seen at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, we've only seen her. Sorry, go ahead, dude. Uh, apologies, I didn't mean to talk over you, but uh, no, no, no. It was me. It was me not shutting the fuck up. I want to hear what you're saying. <laughs> she, uh, in my opinion, fills the role in this book of uh, the instructor for the fish out of water, which is what oh, Kane yeah. is in a lot of ways, coming to grips with his, uh, let's call them powers. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's uh, her job is to guide him and sort of to explain to us as the audience too how thing works. 
Um, yeah, and I appreciated that. The Obi Wan Kenobi of, uh, <laughs> sure, I, I if, if you will. He's a, a very unorthodox. I considered that. That's a good one. Uh, yeah, mentor yeah. figure, but she does fill that role. Yeah. Um, I I want to talk about like a a few things that call back to previous books, and and this is something that you know can bring up a perhaps an existential question for us to ponder. <laughs> oh, good. Um, so <laughs> the whole the whole point of this like. Duncan and the sword and what Kane's doing is to like make the horse switch happen. Right? To like make that past with the horse switch. Yeah, yeah, because that, that for Kane that represents the future. Right. Yeah. Um and <sighs> this is all presumably happening like after Kane Black Knife, right? Mm-hmm. Presumably. But but also time doesn't really mean a whole lot. But we know for sure, like there are events that happen in Kane Black Knife that in in um I think it's like a yesterday's tomorrow or tomorrow's yesterday um, is the name of the chapter uh, where Kane goes back to Perth and Sword as Jonathan Fist. And then like between one turn of the corner and the next, the Pratt and Redhorn is like rebuilt and not burned down. Right. Oh, I didn't know. I didn't pick up on that. That was when he talked to um, Tapas and Turkild. Oh, yeah. Tapas and Turk. Yeah. The, okay. Right yeah. before that, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Okay. But so... In Kane Black Knife, when he's talking to Tapas, uh, she actually mentions the horse switch. Yeah, I, I, I do remember that because at one point you told me, I think you mentioned during the last episode actually, uh, when we were covering Kane Black Knife, you mentioned something about the horse switch. Yeah. And going into it, I remember her saying it one time. I was like, horse switch? Drew said something about a horse switch. I did pick up on that little moment. Yeah. Those seeds were definitely planted there and, and there and there are a lot of things just little throwaway lines in like heroes die and blade of tashal and Kane black knife where Kane talks about how much he doesn't like horses like there's one line where uh in Kane black knife where he's like yeah i don't oh care God. for horses about the nicest thing i can say is that horses on the whole are better than humans people on the whole. yeah oh like, my god i didn't fucking remember that until just until you started saying that yeah so like he he really had this <laughs> plan for damn sober right and, and and the horse which is kind of this culmination of, of a of a very subtle long term mm-hmm. kind of candy path that Stover's laid, you know. It, it really does lead one to the conclusion that he's the more architect yeah architect yeah style of author like Brandon Sanderson, yeah. not he George definitely. R. Okay, yeah, I like, yeah. I can see the foreshadowing now. The the the, the line does make sense. Yeah, I can picture it in my head. <laughs> yeah. We say three hours, four hours before the season eight premiere that we will be watching. Glee yeah, I just found out today that we have Crave. No, he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be watching that too. I just watched the trailer like 45 seconds before we actually started this chat, believe it or not. I have not watched the trailer, so no spoilers. <laughs> oh, don't, don't watch it. It's, you, not but, worth it. but anyway, back to back yeah, to back to this yeah, um, and and the horse switch. The first time I read this book, I I was really annoyed with all the horse switch chapters, but as I go back through now, I I like her more and more. Uh, she's I just like seeing how she tests him constantly, yeah. pushes she's his like, buttons. No I nonsense, do like that, and, but in her own way, has nonsense, right? Like yeah, yeah. It, it it reminds me of like the Office episode when Dwight is uh you know the manager and he has Jim as his assistant. And, and he has the no-nonsense policy, and Jim turns the enforcement of the no-nonsense policy into nonsense. And, like... <laughs> yeah. So, there, there's... 
there are like fun little things like that where where she she's so straightforward, but then but then she'll have like a little twinkle in her eye, like yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, mischievous. That's how I go ahead. There, there's one thing I'd like to touch on briefly about Kane. Mm-hmm. That's a, for me. Yeah, yeah. Him in this book is him. It is most interesting. Okay. We've, we've seen Kane already, but in this book we get our first glimpse into a new dynamic. Now that's this is the dynamic of conscience and regret. Yeah. The whole mm. the whole uh, would you change the worst thing that you've done if you could? Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought that was a really good way uh, to take Kane's character in this book. And again, like you have to balance this very well because if you if you land on the wrong side of this question, uh, for me, you seriously piss me off as a reader. <laughs> well, so it's it's interesting you bring that up because there was a, a note that I actually had written down about the fact that Kane has his father sort of make the choice for him. Yeah, it, like, that moment where he goes, okay, that Kane has regrets it's clear that he knows he's made mistakes somebody like him and Mm. he he yearns to right some of these wrongs but he is still Cain and so it feels I I think um disingenuous to him selfish to him Mm. to that redemption can be a possibility he sees himself as beyond redemption he sees himself as maximum bad as we saw in Cain Black Knife and so when he has this opportunity to not be maximum bad, he struggles to do it because it he's he's so ingrained this image of himself internally that he struggles to get over it. And he needs the help from the one man he truly like respects and in in a twisted way looks up to, and that is his father. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, it's sort of understandable in a way because in this in the world as as it has been presented to us thus far, there are no other chances for redemption. This is his almost his his first chance. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like he can't redeem himself in the eyes of society yeah. or mm-hmm. the gods if he believed in the gods, mm-hmm. which he doesn't. Um... Despite the fact that they're like yeah. having dinner with him. Yeah, I mean, there's there's <laughs> yeah. thinking something is real, and then there's believing in it. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I think this is a very interesting it's philosophical brand new, brand question. New moment. Brand new moment. I think it's a really, really interesting question for anybody at any stage in life. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure no matter who you are, as long as you call yourself a human being, there is something that you regret, something you wish that you yeah. could take back. And for somebody like me, I'm, I'm 27 years old. I'm, I'm a young man. I still live with my parents. I mean, I still have regrets that I would go back and change it. Can you imagine what it would be like for somebody at Kane's age with Kane's history yeah. trying to pick mm-hmm. a single moment to go back and, and, and change something that he and, regrets. I mean, God damn, what a choice that must, that must be for a guy like yeah, him. Right? And then, and then you bring in the, this like existential crisis of, well, if I go back and change this, what else will that change? Yeah. And then Duncan's whole philosophy of like, you know, you can't tell what exactly it is that's going to change. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, there, were, I forget exactly how, how he phrased it before, but this is something that we've heard Duncan repeat a few times about the nature of like and, uh, when I was listening to it, I, I obviously every time I, I kind of thought of the butterfly effect, right? Things that change sure. that you have no yeah. intention of changing, the kind of cascading effect over time that it causes. Mm-hmm. So um, I can see why, you know, Duncan Michelson would be the one person besides you know being a patriarchal figure in his life, why somebody with the philosophies of Duncan Michelson would have that much respect 
from somebody like, you know, Kane, mm-hmm. Harry Michelson. Yeah, yeah. And I do want to also uh, point out that I found it really interesting that we're at the point now with Kane's uh, character where he is starting to correct even his father on his name. He yeah. says, I don't use that name anymore. Yeah, he's right? dead. And he even says it right before he drives the, the sword of man right through his father's chest. He says, I don't use that name anymore. Yeah. You know, um, um, I thought that was a very interesting thing. And so kind of sticking with Duncan and, and Kane and Hari, um, thus far, at least in this book, I still think the, the most um, profound scene is his memory of that day in the Mission District Health Center oh, as a child yeah. when his mother has just been beaten to death, you know, but but she's back there and they're trying to save her and and what is it, six-year-old Hari is sitting there in shock and then Duncan is next to him just catatonic. completely destroyed, yeah, catatonic, yeah. and then Kane walks through the door. Of all people, motherfucking Kane walks through the door. And, I mean, that scene is, is so fraught. It's just packed full of emotion on, on a huge spectrum. Uh, because it's from the six-year-old Harry Michelson's point of view. There's like, you know, hero worship kind of creeps into his description of his father. And he thinks about how his father hits harder than anybody. And, and how his father could... could wreck this old man who walked in yeah. and then and then there's that moment between the two of them and and six-year-old harry realizes oh my gosh this old guy would kill my father yeah when kane <laughs> says don't you know yeah it's like whoa and this one question i have actually at this point about this scene and maybe we're supposed to know the answer by this point maybe we don't how mm-hmm. the hell did duncan recognize kane is this something that's just kind of involved with something I'm going to read in the latter half of this book, or do we so, just, is that just kind of left open to the reader's interpretation, perhaps? We'll, we'll address that at the end of the book. Okay, okay. Yeah. Good to know, because I have that question going forward. There's a lot of yeah. stuff like that. that we'll yeah, have yeah. yeah. This is why this is going to be kind of a shorter episode, because there's a lot, oh, okay. of, a lot of hanging <laughs> questions that we well, really won't you know, get into until the Do I just start half. knocking out some of our uh, favorite one-liners? I would love to. All right, I'll kick us. How about we go one each, just one, 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 one. Going along like that. Okay, so I will start with a quote. Uh, let's see here. Let's. I'm gonna choose. Da, da, da. Okay, yeah. So one by Kane when he's talking to Orbeck uh, near the beginning of the book. He says to Orbeck, "You're gonna sit here, Orbeck, black motherfucking knife, and ask how I know I'm about to set off a nuclear shit bomb." Seriously? Yeah. <laughs> and I, I just love that step back, that kind of like breaking the fourth wall in a, in, a, in a small way where it's like, come on, think about who's telling you this. This is Kane. Has he ever made a big deal about something that didn't turn out to be a bigger deal than anybody thought it yeah, would be? Yeah, Right? I just loved how self-conscious he was in that moment. So so my first one is early on when, he, when he's just discovering that they're Ogreloy on Earth, that the oh, studio yeah, is yeah. using them. And, and he says... The only reason anybody bothers to deal with the Order of Krill in the first place is their military occupation of the Dil Talon. We have to play nice, because they're in place, and they have power, and they are not to be lightly fucked with. But a few thousand Ogreloi <laughs> with state-of-the-art training and home-friendly firearms could kick their armored asses right the fuck off the battleground. I don't care how much God loves you. Getting shot in the face with an anti-tank rocket is going to leave a fucking mark. <laughs> 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 that blatant realism. Oh, okay. Gold. 
<laughs> Pat, you got one for us, man? Uh, I'm afraid I don't. Again, uh, refer back to my comments on the situation in our Blade of Taishal, or uh, <clears throat> our King Black Knight yeah, episode. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good, good. I'll throw another one in then. I mm-hmm. love when somebody asks, um, I think it was, I want to say it was the, the Krillian who asked Tari before he really fucked him up. He said, uh, who are you to be making demands? Of, of of a a knight of krill uh, something along those lines and he says hari of do as you're told in the land of and shut the fuck up yeah uh, i think he was trying to get uh, trying to talk to angvasa at that point uh but i loved that line mm-hmm. hell yeah mm-hmm. uh so my, my second one uh is when the, the horse witch is you know, she says i'm never dead and he goes what happened to, i get killed all the time being killed isn't the same as being dead and then oh, yeah. and then Kane just goes for most people one follows kind of hard on the heels of the other. <laughs> yeah, for most people, yeah. He's just calling her bullshit right away in that sentence. He's like, "Come on. You you know Although what I'm going to try to draw out of that." <laughs> no, but the bullshit kind of phrasing there, I suppose, yeah. 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 Um let's I, see I, here. Oh. I got to find Oh, sorry. Yeah, you go. Yeah, I'll take this one uh, real quick. Mine follows right on the heels of my last one. It's when Kane is told, "Unhand that Krillian." And his response is if you want him any more unhanded, you'll have to give me a knife. Yeah, yeah. After you just, like, <laughs> broke the dude's wrist. Classic Kane. Just fucking <laughs> gold right there. Okay, I, I gotta find this you. one. Um, uh, it's when he's talking... Yeah, it's when he's talking with Tapas. And uh, and he's, like, told her that he he killed Perth and Claylock, and she's just freaking out. And, yeah. And, uh... <laughs> And she's like, do you have any idea how catastrophic this is? <laughs> Relax. You think I'd start a war without knowing how to end it? Of course you would. You've done it at least three, <laughs> three times, times I know of. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, had a, I had a legitimate lull there when I was in the middle of the well. I was like, ha, that's, good, and, that's a good point. And he just goes, oh, sure, bring up the truth. <laughs> yeah, oh, sure, yeah, bring up fact, bitch. Damn, convenient. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, um, there's the scene... <laughs> When Angvasa is, um, well, sorry, Kane is admitting to Angvasa that she reminds him of Murad, right? And she explains how incredible and strong and beautiful the compliment is. And then looks into Kane's eyes and she says, do you find me so very like her then? Yeah. And Kane goes, uh, internally he goes, oh crap. Yeah. He knew enough about women to understand that this conversation had instantaneously transmogrified into a slippery slope above a lake of burning shit. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's just like, oh, what have I gotten myself into? Oh, man. I can't um, get enough. And, and the last one I had, like, it's it's less funny, although, it, you know, it's kind of funny in a in a intense way, but it, it's when um he goes, he breaks into the Ankanan embassy. Actually, there are two yep. really good ones in this. There's It starts off talking about the Ankanan embassy and, like, how it's such, like, a volatile political target and they have all of this, like, crazy magical and non-magical and technological defense and all that and then it's like oh yeah and also kane broke in and and knocked out one of the walking brothers and mm. bound and gagged another one but, yeah but it's when he's with wraith and uh oh yeah i forgot we had some of wraith yeah. in this yeah. part so far he wore layers of loose fitting clothing that wraith knew concealed a variety of weapons some perhaps more lethal than the large pistol oh. he wore behind his belt wraith was not concerned with them the man's real weapon was behind his eyes. Yeah, it was a matter yeah. of passing irony to Wraith, justly famous for powers of mind that could trap the will, blind the eye, or even slay outright. To contemplate 
that he had the second most dangerous mind in the room. Oh, see, I, I, the reason I, in the middle of that, went, yeah, yeah, it was because I thought you were talking about that, the line about his most dangerous weapon being the one behind his eyes. That's why the whole time I was going, I was pointing at my eyes because I knew yeah, exactly yeah. where you were going with this. But I didn't consider that the rest of that line was just as badass. I kind of forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, There's my some last good, one. Like... Oh, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. No, this, this is my last one here, honestly. Uh, uh, so I said... Uh, um, oh, so it was one, again, during the uh, scene with Angvasa, and she's clearly acting a little hysterical. Um, she, she says to him, is that it? You find me insufficiently polite? <laughs> yeah. And then he responds, or in, again, internally, he says that, and he was a little down on sex with suicidal superhuman killing machines. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> again, a very, very introspective moment from mm-hmm. Kane. Right there, like he, th- Kane is a person who understands just how fucking wild events are around him at all times. I do like that kind of um, step back and that appreciation in those moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's like, yeah. I'm oh. assuming I'm going to have quite a bit more after uh, for the second half of this book. One can only hope. Yeah, yeah. There, there are definitely some. Good... I trust Stover. He's got he's got a good track record up to this point. Yeah, but uh, shall we move into the final draft though? Yeah, we can move into the final draft. Rob, you want to kick us off? Yeah, I'll kick us off. So, I've decided to pretty much forego beer. I think uh, for this this uh, podcast because being um, a, rec- a kind of like pseudo recovering alcoholic as, like, as myself, I beer just gives me a headache. Every time it makes me want to piss, it gives me a headache. So I've decided to start going back to the, either the scotch or the whiskey. And today, um, I had a, a gentleman at work by the name of Ross. He recommended to me that I should try the uh, Jack Daniels has this rye whiskey out okay. now. So I decided to give that a shot. It was, it was Jack Daniels uh, Tennessee straight, I think it was rye, and um, it's actually really fucking good. And I, I I don't like Jack Daniels as a general rule. I don't know if I've mm. mentioned this before, but Jack Daniels to me as a whiskey is very kind of sickly sweet. I don't I, I don't really appreciate the the flavor of it too much. But this rye that they have out, it's forty five percent now. It's got a lot of um hints of kind of fruitiness to it. It's got toffee. It's got a lot of banana. I definitely t- noticed a few times the taste of banana. So I drink it with just a splash of water. You know, room temperature. Yeah. Give it a little uh, little sipper. Neat it's, with uh, a little water. Neat with a little water. It goes down real nice. Definitely. You're right in that Jack Daniels is essentially whiskey for people who aren't 21 yet. Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> like I I was never a big fan of Jack Daniels ever in my oh, life. Man. Uh, but the rye is actually not bad. The, that's the one Jack Daniels that I would say is is palatable. Uh, fair okay. enough. Uh, yeah. Pat, what you got? Uh, I'm uh, again hitting the the mics hard. Um, Ooh. <laughs> it's my it's my way of uh, wishing summer into a further uh, existence here. In I Colorado. love that you've got the fucking cup hey, again too. It's, can... a, it's a horn. It is actually. Uh... Nice. Let me show you. It's a legit drinking. Yeah, I remember. I remember drawing focus to that in a past episode. Like, what the fuck is he holding there? I just love the dichotomy between how, uh, like, masculine it is to drink out of a horn and how feminine it is to drink Mike's heart. Yeah, I'm balancing my nature. Hey, I can get behind dichotomy. uh, If if you drinking that brings on summer faster, I'm here for it. Like, I'm I'm done with these 
fucking bomb cyclone snowstorms hitting yeah. Colorado. That's like I'm two in a month. Like no. I'll tell you what, up here in Canada, we've had a very mild winter, and we've been just enjoying a lot of warm weather uh, recently. Uh, so fuck you, Colorado. Did eat you, it. Well, well you sent all your shit weather down yeah, to us. Huh? Thankfully, today it is like <laughs> seventy-one degrees here, and I'm I am down. Nice. I'm here nice. for it. <laughs> you Canadians and sending your weather down and your doctors to practice yeah, medicine fuck you here guys. and take your it, patients take it off to get, whatever to get healthcare in America. Like, <laughs> sincerely, the Arctic. Oh yeah. man. So, what about you, Drew? What are you? Uh, what are you pounding down today? So, I have for the first time on this podcast recycled a beer. Ooh, kind of recycled. He just bought now, the same beer. You will, you will recall that for the second Blade of Taishal episode, I did. Oil Man Imperial Stout from Elevation Brewing Company. Okay. And that was in reference to uh, Wraith, of course, as, the, you know, the, the oil man with the oil hand and, like, you know, and all that. Well, we have a new oil man in this book because Kane accepts the offer from the Board of Governors and injects the crude oil into himself. I guess we do, yeah. And so today I have Coconut Oil Man from Ooh. Elevation Brewing Company. Oh, it my God, I'm a sucker for coconut. Of the four variants of Oil Man, uh, I think coconut is the second best. Uh, the the coffee is the coffee is tops still, and then coconut, and then probably the the standard, and then vanilla. I I didn't love the vanilla flavor in, in that one. It was a little artificial. It was a little plasticky, but uh, but yeah, no, this this coconut's quite good. You know, it's a ten point eight percent. Uh, God damn! Every time you bring a beer on the podcast, I feel like oof. such a puss over here with my beers that are five percent, six. What are you talking about? You're drinking a forty-five percent whiskey? No, right now I am, but I, you know, up to this point, I've been drinking. Uh, I've been drinking mostly beers up to this point. I think the strongest beer I've brought on the podcast is a Bone Shaker, which is like seven point one percent. But yeah, I, occasionally I'll go back down to my scotch, my whiskey, but I water them down a little bit. Definitely don't water them down to the point of beer, but you know. I mean, nice when, when Canadian craft brewing takes off like American craft brewing has, and you can just easily <laughs> get your hands on bourbon barrel stouts and things like that, yeah, then then you can. Or I come down and I try them all myself. Well, that I mean, that will happen, obviously. Oh, damn right it will. Hell yeah. So, uh, Sweet. Yeah, I mean, do we do we have any like final thoughts on the first half of Kane's Law that we want to touch on? Uh, not really. Um, I'm just gonna kind of preface something that I'm going to be discussing in the second half of this. Okay. Um, I'm just going to mention that, holy crap, I, I, I had a problem earlier, I think I mentioned in a previous podcast, with the amount of 19th and 20th century literary references that we're getting. Yeah. And, oh boy, do I have a list building up for the, you know, for the oh, second yeah. episode here. I this didn't get is, to them today, but... I mean, this I ties back of... into what I was talking about with, like, how he's writing an academic yeah. literary essay, like a, a an analysis of the first two books because he's like drawing real world literary comparisons yeah. and like he's got yeah. like Faust and To Kill a Mockingbird and Ender's Game yeah. and like all this stuff. He's got Ender's you know. Game? I didn't notice that uh, one. He made anywhere. a reference to uh, Orson Scott Card in Kane Blackknife. He oh, talked about that. There, was, a, there was like an early, okay. there, there was like a late point. 20th century, early 21st century Mormon writer. And, and, oh. and he uh, considering Blade of Taishal as well. I mean, have you read Ender's Game? I did. I read Ender's Game, but I didn't read any of the. Uh, so, sequels. well, there's there's a specific scene in Ender's Game for anybody who who hasn't read the book. I won't spoil anything, but there's a scene in a bathroom in Ender's yeah. Game that yeah. it and and I'm just saying that he absolutely drew a little bit of a parallel to the bathroom scene at the beginning of Blade oh, of Taishal. Yeah. yeah. 
So yeah, no, not and not to not like I have a problem with nineteenth and twentieth and twenty first century literary you know works or anything like that. But it's my problem is the fact that this supposedly takes place centuries in the future. Those are the only works that he's drawing from. I mean, draw a little from the past, draw a little from the future, make some shit up in the interim. Don't just like draw from the same oh, he, fifty year he, period he also again draws and again from and again. Distant past. I mean, I mean he because he, he, he talks about like the sort of man to, in Kosal. Like he 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 makes references to like. Greek and Norse mythology with that, and and oh, Arthurian mythology, mythology and, and, and stuff like that. And okay, no, yeah, but, I hadn't actually considered that. It's pretty funny just to consider, like, as a whole, how how this is like a like an action oriented, like grim, dark sci fi fantasy, but it's also like weirdly highbrow literary at the same time. Yeah, because you really <laughs> to get a lot of these references, you have to be a widely read individual for sure. Yeah, yeah. Like, I haven't like, read to Kill a Mockingbird at all. Never have. Yeah, I mean, there's stuff that I would never have picked up on had I not majored in English. Like, if I didn't have to read yeah. these books for, you know, 300, 400 level literature yeah. classes, I, yeah. a lot of his references would have flown right over my head. Yeah. And my, my very, very, very last point here, I just want to give a, a, a shout out to that fight that Kane had with Tanner, and that was yeah. badass. And that was, I think, the first time across four books so far that I actually had a moment where I feared for Kane's life. Yeah, I I could I actually thought, oh shit, like this is this is real. This could be it. So I just want to give a shout out to Tanner for being such a badass to go toe to toe with someone like Kane, and even in Kane's perspective in that moment, thinking this guy actually has me. He's younger. He's stronger. He's better trained. I'm kind of fucked unless a miracle happens. <laughs> yeah. Enter Orbeck, you know, thank you. But yeah, uh, Orbeck's holy so crap. What, what a good yeah. brother. <laughs> so I just wanted to give that that particular scene a shout out. And that's pretty much it, everything I have to discuss for uh, the first half of Kane's Law. I'll, uh, I'll leave off with one final thought. And that is, yes, journey before destination, but the destination is still important. Interesting. So Interesting. we'll catch you in the next episode. Okay. Sweet. I'll All right, I, I like forward. that. I like that. So yeah, this has been episode eighteen. <clears throat> eighteen episodes. Oh man, uh, can't believe we're that deep in. But uh, yeah, so I'm as always, I'm, I'm Drew McCaffrey, and uh, here with my co-host Rob Santos and, and our special guest and awesome sound engineer Pat McCaffrey. Later. So uh, yeah, next time we'll be finishing up Kane's Law, and uh, yeah, hope you join us. Thanks everybody. See ya.